We're speaking today with Steve Wilson, European sports editor and journalist for the Associated Press, an Olympic specialist who has covered 15 summer and winter Olympic Games. He is a member of the IOC Press Commission and president of the Olympics Journalists Association. In addition to the Olympics, he reports and writes on a wide range of sports, including tennis, golf, soccer, basketball, football, track and field, skiing, and more. He is a proud graduate of Tufts University, as am I, go Jumbos, and we are delighted to have him with us today on Tanager Talks. Steve, you've covered what must be a record number of Olympics in your career. And in the 20 years that I've lived in this country, the UK has virtually rewritten its Olympic history, both as a successful host in 2012 and a metal powerhouse in Rio last summer. To what do you attribute this success? Well, thanks for having me. First of all, I appreciate uh, to be here to speak with you on these topics. And yes, you're right. I mean, the, what's happened with Team GB over the last 20 years has been remarkable. And uh, as you mentioned, if you go back to 1996 uh, in the Atlanta Olympic Games, uh, the British team came away with one single gold medal, just one. And it was a, it was a real humiliation. And here we are in 2016, just a couple months after the Rio Games, where Team GB finished second overall on the medals table uh, behind the U.S., even ahead of China, 67 total medals, uh, 27 gold medals. Just an amazing, amazing achievement, really. So the question you pose is what's, uh, what's, what's brought this about? And I think the simple answer is the National Lottery. It's the funding from the National Lottery that the money has brought in to provide training, uh, talent spotting, facilities, coaching, that has brought Team GB to this level. I mean, it's hundreds of millions of pounds that are invested in uh, elite sport, Olympic sport, uh, every year uh, towards for a four-year cycle with the aim specifically of achieving success at the Olympic Games, and it has paid off in spades. Is it sustainable? I mean, uh... I think for sure. I mean, th it's incredible that how uh, the British team succeeded at the London Games, its home games, but even more incredible is that they topped that four years later in Rio. Mm -hmm. And that's the first country ever, host country ever, to improve on their medals the following games. And uh, so that just shows how this is sustained. And I think the uh, momentum is there and will continue to be so. I mean, I think it will feed off uh, what happened in Rio and we'll see um, the Team GB pressing to do just as well, if not better, in Tokyo. Okay. Well, speaking of Rio, um, from your unique position, how would you judge Latin America's first Olympic Games? Not as good as it could have been, uh, is the short answer. Um, you know, as I've been to 15 Olympic Games, and I was really looking forward to this one. And this, you know, this, as you point out, these are the first games that were sent to South America, the first time in that continent. And if you look back seven years ago, when Rio was chosen, the whole, you know, the country, the whole world was a different place. Uh, Rio, Brazil was riding high as a, 
on the world stage, and politically and economically at the time, and it looked like a great decision to go to South America and, and Brazil in particular. Well, in the meantime, things went south. The economy tanked. Uh, the government fell apart. Uh, there were scandals across the country. So the lead-in to these games in Rio were really uh, depressing and uh, difficult for the country and uh, as well. So in the end, I think what happened is that that took a, a big part of the potential success and enjoyment of these games out of it. The games were a success overall. Uh, as you probably watched on TV, you could see great sports. Uh, you know, you saw Bolt again, you saw Phelps, you saw a lot of great achievements. But behind the scenes, like for us, those, are, those of us that were in Rio, you know, we felt, you know, these weren't that enjoyable, to be honest with you. Uh, slightly underwhelming. Uh, what happened, I think, was that Rio and Brazil in particular ran out of money, in a sense, uh, to fund these games. So a lot of corners were cut. Uh, things were not completely finished up to the standard that they usually are. And there were a lot of glitches that you may not have heard. You know, of course, you saw the, the pool, the water turned green. Uh, we had some accidents. We had people robbed. We had, you know, muggings of officials and athletes. And, you know, we had the Ryan Lochte scandal, which is a whole other ball of wax, which sort of overshadowed the, the end of the games. And even more significant, I think, as you, you may have seen on TV as well, is, is the empty seats. I mean, Yeah, that was really, the, the atmosphere really, must have been exactly. really different. I think it was the, at, the lack of atmosphere, which was the biggest disappointment. Because, you know, when you think of Rio, when you think of Brazil, you think, you know, you think of uh, the carnival spirit, uh, you know, the whole party atmosphere. This is a great place to be. But it, it sort of let down on that level. I mean, there were as you, the seats were empty in a lot of venues, partly because I think people couldn't afford the tickets uh, or they had lost interest because of all the depressing things in their country. And just the ticketing uh, system was, was flawed. So you didn't have a sense of, of party... Uh, atmosphere that you did here in London. I mean, here in London, if you were in the Olympic Park four years ago, everybody was out. There were people with faces painted, flags waving from all over amazing. the world, right? I it mean, was it, was, it was a great place to be. You felt like yeah. you were at the center of the universe at, yeah. at one time. But in Rio, that wasn't the case. Everything was spread out. There was not a, there was not one center where everyone would go to, to have a good time and be seen and enjoy the Olympics. So it was just not what I think everyone hoped. Uh, it, again, it, was, it was, wasn't bad, it was a success overall, but it doesn't rank up there in the top uh, games themselves. Well, that brings me to my next question, which is, uh, with that in mind, um, and with Rome just having bowed out of the running um, for the 2024 Summer Olympics, what do you think the committee is going to do in, in making that selection? And and uh, which city is going to win? Right. Well, we have a fascinating uh, race underway. We have about less than a year to go. Uh, we started with five cities in the race, uh, but we're down to three. Uh, Hamburg from Germany dropped out when the residents said no thank you in a referendum. And the city of Rome dropped out in the last few weeks because the mayor, new mayor said no thank you, we've got other priorities on our plate. So that leaves three, and that leaves Los Angeles, Paris, and Budapest. So at this point, you would have to say that Los Angeles and Paris are the two strong favorites. Budapest, good candidate, but probably an outsider at this stage. So we look at LA versus Paris. It's a fascinating battle because you have two cities, each of which have hosted the Olympics twice. 
going for a third. Paris hasn't, last time Paris hosted the games would be 100 years ago. It was 1924, so it would be a symbolic win for them to get the games uh, 100 years later. Los Angeles, last time was 1984, uh, very successful games. So I think what uh, is going to be a key factor in the decision is politics. And I mean specifically who's going to win the elections in both those countries. Of course, we know if the U.S. election goes one way, uh, uh, it could affect uh, Los Angeles quite strongly. What I mean by that is if if Donald Trump were to win, I think uh, Los Angeles, the chance of L.A. winning would uh, decrease uh, because a lot of the members who are voting are Europeans, are international people who, you know, may not uh, cotton on to some of the comments Trump has made about Muslims and Mexicans and, and, and those kind of things. So I think uh, L.A. is hoping for, you know, a Hillary Clinton victory. She's much more connected to the Olympics. Uh, her husband was president during the 1996 Atlanta Olympics. She's uh, She went to uh, Olympic meetings to to uh, when New York was bidding. So she's she's got a good Olympic connection. So that will be a, a key factor the result of that. And then also in France as well, we have presidential elections coming up in 2017. And uh, the result of that could also have an impact. Marine Le Pen is a candidate, potential could make a run, could be a strong candidate. I think that would uh, perhaps uh, be a negative uh, for the Paris bid if she were to go far to win, but we will see what happens. And then another big issue for Paris being security and terrorism. Mm-hmm. We know what's happened in the country there in the last year or so. And this, this concerns will continue to, you know, to be scrutinized uh, from now until the vote. So I think it's a close race between those two cities, both with great uh, potential, uh, great uh, Olympic backgrounds, um, but a lot of uh, issues still to, to play in the next uh, few months. The, the vote will be in September in Lima, Peru. That's interesting. Okay. Um, switching gears. Now to another of your specialties, tennis. Um, And since we are the podcast that focuses on Anglo-American topics, I want to ask about the rise and rise of Britain's Andy Murray to number two in the world versus the disappearance of American men from the top rankings. Will we ever see an American man win a Grand Slam again? And is there life for the American women's game post the Williams sisters? Good questions on all, all points. Well, as you point out, Andy Murray is number two in the world now. He's actually pushing Novak Djokovic, you know, for, for the number one spot. Djokovic still number one, but the Murray's closing in and could potentially catch him by the end of the year if things go his way. We'll see what happens. So the Murray, the rise of Murray has been is, is, is going strong, is stronger and stronger. He's won the Davis Cup. He's won the Grand Slams. He's won you know, the Olympics again. So watch for Murray to really make a push uh, in the next year to, to take the number one ranking because Novak Djokovic certainly seems to be vulnerable at the moment for different reasons. As for the American tennis, you're right, it's been uh, a big drought. Uh, you know, at the moment, I just checked, double-checked the rankings. There's no American man in the top 20. Uh, the, the highest-ranked American man, Jack Sock, who's number 22, uh, John Isner at number 25. That's uh, That says a lot. Uh, and um, I think, you know, they're good players. They're solid players. Uh, you have to respect their game and what they've done and achieved. But to be honest, will they ever win a Grand Slam? I'd be, I would doubt it very much so. Will they ever even make a final of a Grand Slam? I'd be surprised as well. So future men's tennis in America, not that great, I would say. It really isn't. I mean, uh, 
there's no one on the rise who you can pinpoint as being, wow, this guy's going to be real challenge the top guys. So you guys. see no one coming up. I mean, I see those type of middle-range guys who are good players, but no one standing out at the moment. Let's see if someone comes up in the next 10 years, but right now there's no one who looks poised to break into the top 10, let alone, you know, the top four. As for the women, a little bit better. I mean, well, of course, the Williams sisters are still here. Serena's at number two, but showing some signs of of, of slipping. Uh, she's been injured. She's lost in finals. She's she's not, you know, she always seems to come back when we when we doubt her. But uh, you know, she's still up. She's over 30s now, so let's see how far she can go. Venus, you know, is in the top 20, but you know, far from the top of her game. So. What will happen beyond them? Well, again, it's not that bright. I mean, there is there are a couple good players out there. Madison Keys, she's number seven in the world right now. She qualified for the Singapore, uh, the WTA Finals in Singapore this week. So she's she's a good player, can and I think will will continue to rise. Sloane Stevens as well. She's she can be a top ten player if she if she if she keeps at it. But again, neither of them you would necessarily project as being the next big thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're good players. Relatively young, but uh, no sign that they're about to replace the Williams sisters or, or you know, or even uh, Kerbers and players like that. So a little bit better for the women on the American side, but still not that great. So what has changed? Has the game changed? Has American training changed? Um, I think it goes in, you know, it's, there are a lot of reasons, but I think a lot of things goes in cycles. I mean... Uh, you know, there was a point where I think the feeling was, well, American players sort of have lost their edge, their hunger, their appetite, that it was the players who were hungrier and those specifically those in, say, Eastern Europe who were having, you know, coming from countries which were less well off and were going through tougher times, which who had more hunger and appetite to get through. So that's why you've seen a lot of players from Eastern Europe. Uh, in the women's game, particularly coming through, that you know, that potentially one reason. Otherwise, I think it's secular. I mean, you know, the Williams sisters—that's that's going to come around once in, in a generation. Then you have two players like that come around. Um, so maybe we'll just have to you know wait a few years, and eventually it'll come around. But it is definitely you know a time where American tennis is not the top of the game. Okay. Well, speaking of Anglo-American topics, um, last Sunday marked the first NFL American football game to be held at Twickenham, the home of English rugby, and previous NFL games have played to sell-out crowds at Wembley, the home of English football. So what's going on here, and do you think there is any truth to the rumors of an NFL franchise being established in London? Well, as we speak, I'm getting prepared to go to Wembley Stadium this weekend uh, for the third game in London this year to watch my hometown team, the Washington Redskins, play the Cincinnati Bengals. So I'm really excited about that. So yes, the NFL has been playing regular season games in London now for 10 years. Um, we having three games this year, potentially four next year, and potentially five the year after that. So, um, you know, it's really been growing and going strength to strength. As you point out, virtually all the games are sellouts, that meaning 80,000 or so at Wembley, 70,000 or so at, uh, in, at, at Twickenham. 
So there's definitely a fan base here that wants to go to the games, that's paying money for the tickets and going to the games. And NFL has really, you know, made its mark here in the UK and in London in particular. The big question, as you point out, is is there a possibility of someday London having its own NFL franchise based here in the UK? There's talk that you know potentially 2022 would be the target date for such such a project to, to come through. I personally would be surprised. I think, yes, there's a good fan base here. People will go to the games. But the idea of having a full-time tier team here in London has so many logistical, financial hurdles to, to overcome that I, I find it hard to, to see it happening, uh, to, be, to be honest. Um, I mean, you'd have, remember, the, the geography, essentially, We'd have to travel. A team would have to travel, you know, 11 hours to go to the West Coast in the U.S. to play, eight, you know, seven hours to East Coast. How could they figure? How could they do that on a regular basis? Um, what are the tax uh, uh, implications to have a U.S. sports team in the U.K.? I think the players and teams that come over here, they enjoy the experience. They, 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 they. You know, they enjoy seeing London and playing in front of a different type of crowd, and, and they find this, the, the facilities good and the crowds um, knowledgeable. But I think that's it. I'm not sure they really would commit to being here full time if you ask most of them to do so. So I think the NFL has really succeeded in a big way uh, here in the UK, I, but I personally don't think that we'll have a full time here. It's not impossible, but it's my opinion that it won't happen. And I think the NFL is also looking at other countries too to continue to spread the game. I think the, the other country where they really would like to make a breakthrough is in China. There's talk of having an NFL game in Beijing one day, and I think that's their next priority. So let's let's see what happens on that score. That'd be huge. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um. Finally, Steve, I I'm I want to ask you about your own journey. Um, so tell me, how did a young man from Washington D.C. go from being an English major at Tufts University to the European sports editor for a major wire service living in the U.K.? Well, it was, it was came naturally in the way because I went to I went to Tufts really not knowing what I was going to do but I, my father was a journalist so I had it in the blood and um, one of the first things I did when I arrived at Tufts was to go visit the Tufts Observer the newspaper office and to sign up and really that was the start of it uh, so I really got hooked I felt this hey right away I felt this is what I really love doing I felt I found a vocation a calling um, you know my first semester at Tufts already I think wow this is great and um, it was a weekly newspaper um, but it really carried weight on the campus and I went on to become you know sports editor and news editor and eventually editor-in-chief of the Tufts Observer which was a great uh, great privilege and and, um, and at the same time I was able to uh, to connect with the Associated Press office in Boston and um, and I was able to get work with them and they liked what I could do and they used me more and more and um, I was actually able to work full-time uh, for a semester um, at the AP and getting credit for it from Tufts and which was a great experience and by the time I graduated they offered me a full-time job in uh, Miami 
and and off I went. I worked, worked in Miami. I worked in uh, back in Boston. I worked in New York City at the headquarters, and then I went overseas on my first uh, overseas overseas assignment was in New, New Delhi in India. Uh, I worked uh, for AP for three years there, covering news and general news and politics in India. Wow. that must have been something. Yeah, I could. We could spend a whole chapter on that. And then um, then I went to Rome. I was based in Rome for five years, covering uh, the the Vatican and. The Pope and uh, politics and, and, and all things um, Italian, and then um, eventually I came to London uh, 20 years ago in the sports position, and uh, I was lucky enough to to move into the Olympic field, and it was taking me around the world uh, many a time, and uh, it's been a bit, been a great journey. So it was a bit of luck, and uh, hopefully a bit of talent too along the way. And and just a, a wonderful, uh, you know, you found your passion the first semester yeah. at, at Tufts, and, and here you are. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, uh, it's a great it's story. Too. Yeah, thanks. Perfect. Um, Steve, uh, we've learned a lot um, about uh, the Olympics uh, in particular, um, about tennis and uh, the NFL, um, about being a journalist. Um, it's been a terrific Tanager talk, and I want to thank you very much. Oh, it's my pleasure. Anytime. I really enjoyed it. Thank you.